I got a new parka for Christmas from my parents. Mom, Dad, thanks so much. I, I've been, they watch, you know, I have to be really careful what I say. Uh, I, I love just sort of when it's really, really cold, nestling into that thing and going out and hiking and exploring. And I was doing that a couple of weeks ago, making my way along one of my favorite, more remote lakeside trails. One of these ones that has a winding creek that makes its way through that has just enough current that it never quite freezes during the winter. But when I came upon it this day, it had frozen solid because it had been reduced to just a trickle. As I made my way further down the path, I finally figured out why. A tree felled in one of those wicked windstorms that we've had, and we've had a couple of them, dropped itself right into the middle of the creek bed, and its massive trunk dammed up the flow of water. There is nothing that alters the flow of a river so completely as a dam. And when it happens, I was reading this week that it can take three to five years or more for the downstream ecosystem to recover from that change. When the natural flow of water is diverted, the impact downstream is enormous. And the output of the water downstream is dependent entirely on the quality and the flow of what's going on upstream. That image, that image in scripture is much like what God says he does in our lives. Think all the way back to Genesis 2, the beginning of the creation story. There's a telling description of what the garden looks like, paradise. And it says right there in the middle, this is Genesis 2 in verse 10, right there in the middle, there was a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. And from there, it separated into four headwaters, and then it flowed throughout the whole earth. And this, in this pristine place that God created for people to live, there was a river, and it flew from Eden, and it split into tributaries, and it nourished the world. In the Psalms, the great worship book of God's Old Testament people, they knew kind of what that meant. They understood the image, and they would sing it out together. They would sing in Psalm 46 and verse 4 that there is a river whose streams delight the city of God, the holy place where God the Most High dwells. And then if you fast forward, we've been at the very beginning, we've been in the middle in Psalms. If you go to the very end of the Bible, there's this vision of what creation looks like when everything that's broken gets somehow mended and restored. Creation begins, creation gets muddled up, but at the end of the story, there's this vision of new creation. And here's how it is. These, these words were used just to encourage the church. You can persevere in times of adversity, oppression, persecution, pandemic. Here's the vision. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. And then an angel showed me what? The river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing through the middle of the streets of the city. And on the other side, on each side of the river, there was life, the tree of life. So let's go back, having those sort of 
pictures of the river flow of, of God in our minds. Let's go back to the stories of Jesus. When Jesus is trying to explain to people what life is like when it's lived in the awareness of and the presence of and with the filling of God, what is it like? Listen to what he says in John in chapter 7. John 7, verse 38, says, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, and we looked at some of those Scriptures, rivers of living water will flow from within them, from inside of them. From inside out, our faith has a way of expressing itself. What flows into us spills out of us. But just like happened on my little nature walk a few weeks ago, sometimes things happen that kind of dam up the flow. And if you look at a church that has sort of lost that sense of of joy and excitement and passion and God is spilling out of them, one of the things you want to ask is, is there something that has dammed up the flow? If you're feeling dry in your own spiritual life and God God's real but feels distant and it just doesn't feel alive anymore and the excitement that was once there, maybe you want to say, is there something that has dammed up the flow? We're in the middle, as Dante reminded us, and uh, Sheldon prayed for us, of this series called Start Again. And we're, we're using that phrase intentionally because that's what God does in our lives. We follow him as best we can, and yet still there are times that come where we just get stuck. And the flow of, of the river, it gets dammed up either inside of us or on its way into us, and so it just doesn't come out. And what does God say in those times? You wicked tetetno. He says, start again. Start again. It's the vision for the church. It's the vision for those people, the individual parts of the church. It's the vision for us collectively. It's the vision for us individually. Like in those early primordial days in the Garden of Eden when God had to start all over again because sin somehow crept into paradise through just a series of terrible choices. He says, we're going to start again. He says the same thing in Babel. Remember that story, the Tower of Babel? and the Yeah, we're going to start again. He says the same thing in Egypt. We're going to start again. Throughout Scripture, he says to people, when things get really muddled up and dammed up, we're going to start again. And so one of the simplest frameworks, ways of understanding this in Scripture, is that little triangle. You can put that triangle up on the screen. We've been trying to unpack how it is that we start again. We've been using it by looking at these different dimensions, the up, the in, the, the out. Two weeks ago, we looked at the up. Up is all about faith, the vibrancy of faith. It's, it's kind of like that's the river that's rushing into us. And then last week, we looked at the in. The in is about, about love and love that drives us into community. It's kind of like the, the river waters teeming around and moving between us. But this morning, we're going to look at the out. Out is all about hope. As we look at those three dimensions, focusing particularly on the last one, on the out, I want you to think for a minute about the life of Jesus, however much you may know of that life. There are passages in the Gospels that describe the, the up dimension of Jesus' life. 
Time and time again, you see Jesus pulling away from the busyness of life, from the clamor of the crowds, seeking out a solitary place. Why? To be alone, to pray, to cultivate the up, the relationship with his father. About three and a half years into his public ministry, he talked openly about what that connection was like, about how connected he was with the father, about how connected that made him to the people that his father had created. All of that, an expression kind of of the up. Then you think about the, the in. Uh, in. In two of the four Gospels, the opening chapters, first two chapters are about this. In the other two, it's the opening four chapters that are about this. It's about building community. Jesus, God on earth, says, if I'm going to live a connected life, connected with God, it's not enough that it's just a private connection. I also need to build it into other people. And so very quickly starts gathering people closely around him. He designates 12. These are going to be the disciples. But there's more. There's this group of women faithfully who are always with him, providing, actually funding ministry, listening and learning. There's a larger group of people, a group of 50 or more traveling companions of Jesus. This will be the foundation for the ministry of what eventually emerges as the church. But before they're ever the church, they're just this cohort of close friends and disciples who began to experience the up and in flow and then reflexively, automatically, almost naturally, it moves into something outward. Very early in the ministry, Jesus lived and modeled what this out component looked like. And you see it most often in the connections he has with those who are if you like, most on the outs in the world, with those who are most significantly disenfranchised. Samaritan woman, people who are afflicted with contagious disease, uh, people who the rest of the world sort of pushed out to the edges of society, tax collectors, prostitutes, those who were chronically, generationally poor. Jesus made heroes out of them. Who's the hero in the story of the Good Samaritan? It's the Samaritan, someone who lived on the outs of society. Who's the faithful champion of of generosity, the poster child of what it means to be generous in the Gospels? It's, It's Zacchaeus, the corrupt, greedy tax collector whose life was turned upside down. He said in Matthew, in chapter 25, if you want to know what it's like and who will be Uh, enjoying eternity with God, then here's a clue. Look to the people who see around them, those who are hungry and thirsty and homeless and shivering and sick and in prison. And because they're up and they're in are, are components that are healthy, the very first thing that they do almost instinctively is that they fed and they gave and they sheltered and they clothed and they visited these people. When the, when the rivers of God's goodness and his compassion and his grace are, are flowing into them, when there is nothing damming up the flow, you couldn't help but see it spill out of them. Does that make sense? 
consistent sort of with with what you've read uh, of the life of Jesus? Now, I mean, to be clear, this isn't something that Jesus invented. This didn't come out of thin air. This didn't represent a radical new direction for who God was or how God designed us to be. From the very beginning of the scriptures that we have, God puts this framework in place. Not just the start again, not just the follow him up and in and out, but, but look at what the out looked like. If you have your Bibles, have a look with me in, in the book of Joshua. Joshua 8, verse 35. Now this is a, this is kind of an interesting passage, and maybe you've never read it in this light, but I, I want you to see what's going on here. Joshua 8, 35, let's read it. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded. So that's kind of like the whole first five chapters of the Bible. There was not a word in all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to who? To the whole assembly of Israel, including who? including the women and the children and all the aliens who lived among them. Not aliens like, but um, foreigners, refugees, those who had spilled over their borders and come to be with them. It's easy to miss the last part of that verse. Women and children and, and aliens. But here's what's going on. For 400 years, God's people had lived in exile. They were conquered, they were taken into captivity, they lived as slaves in Egypt. And then God sent them Moses. God worked through Moses and secured their freedom and sends them out of Egypt. They get across the river and they thought after a very short three to five day journey, they would be at last in their promised land. Turned out it was 40 years, 40 years of wandering around in the desert. The passage that we read in Joshua 8 just now is recorded only two to three months after they had finally, after 40 years of, I don't know how lost you have to be, but 40 years of wandering in the desert, they had finally at last arrived in the promised land. They first set foot in what would be their homeland. And I have to tell you, if there was any group in the world who kind of had, had an excuse to stay insulated, it's this group of people. And Joshua says they, they stepped across the border into the new land and they built this altar, this sort of physical reminder that they'd arrived and that it was because of God's guidance and provision. And there at the altar, Joshua read the words of Moses. And he said, I want you to take these words. I want you to put them into your kids' hearts I want you to remind them, every time they see these these stones stacked here, I want you to remind them about the goodness of God. But it wasn't just the kids who were there. And it wasn't just it wasn't just the the original inhabitants, the chosen people of God. It was all of the aliens who had come to join them. Because even at this point in their history, Israel had this really semi permeable border. People would just come in. If anybody had a reason to live inward, insulated, it was them. For 400 years, oi, for 400 years, we've lived in exile, we've been slaves. For 40 years, we wandered in the desert. This is not a good time to start 
living outwardly. We've just moved. We're still in boxes. Give us a few years just to get settled in and build our houses, and then we'll open our doors to the disenfranchised and the, and the newcomer and the immigrant and the refugee. But no, they, they were living out the commands that God had given them. Chief among them, one of the many places where it's given, Deuteronomy 15.8, this wonderful passage, was the command that says this way. It says this, among the people, those who are around you, be open-handed and freely lend whatever they need. Give generously, not with a grudging heart. That framework has been the fabric of God's people from the beginning. Welcome the stranger, the widow, the orphan. Guard them, take care of them, cherish them. Live out in the world. Then if we go ahead, well, a few thousand years, we arrive in Acts chapter 2. You want to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts 2. In Acts 2, this is after the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The church is just getting started. This is like day one in the life of the church. A very familiar passage in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It describes what it's like when God's people are living this up and in and out lifestyle. And here's the repercussions. In verse 42, here is the up and in lifestyle. They committed themselves to the teaching and the life together and to shared meals and prayers. Connecting with God, connecting with each other, up and in. But look at the out expression. It's inevitable when the up and the in are healthy. Here's the out expression. This is verses 44 and 45. They sold whatever they owned. They pooled their resources together so that each person's needs were met. And what are the repercussions? I love this little paraphrase. This is a paraphrase from a a version of the Bible called The Message. It says, people in general liked what they saw. (laughs) I bet they did. I bet they did. People noticed the way they lived, not just the up and the in, but the out. And because of that that three-dimensional triangular focus to living, there was this magnetic pull to the people of God in the early days of the church. And their numbers began to grow. In a very real sense, don't miss this, in a very real sense, the the litmus test, if you'd like, of the quality of our up and our in is found in the expression and the impact of our out. Sometimes we talk about this church being a mission church and this church being, this is a teaching church. And no, 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 no. A church that has lost the out, has lost the gospel. You know, if anything, they're probably drowning because all they're getting is up and it's not getting out of them. They're just drowning in it. It's got to flow through. You have to be able to imagine there are people out there and their lives are, maybe they're not like ours. But God loves them, and there's something to flow into them. You need to have the compassion that moves us towards those people and really be leery of the stuff that pushes them away. How much of the public rhetoric of the church is designed to push people away, to make them feel like God has a hate list and they're on it? 
Stay away. You need to have the kind of lifestyle that can allow us to be in the world, preserving what God has called people to be, holy and good, faithful. But at the same time, to be in the world and offering people a taste of what it's like to live in Christ. It's a book by a man named Gregory Boyle. It's called Tattoos on the Heart. If you can find it, it's, it's worth a read. Father Gregory Boyle, Catholic priest, works among gang members in Los Angeles. Fascinating book. And he, and he writes, I think, really profoundly about what happens when the up and the in are working well, but how there's this reflexive, almost intuitive movement out. And it's sacrificial, and it's inconvenient, but it's, it's inevitable. And he tells a story in the book. If you have a couple of minutes, well, where are you going to go, right? Everything's closed. Yeah. <laughs> he tells a story. Uh, one day he gets a phone call from a social worker, pleading with him over the phone. There's this kid, kid named Anthony, 19 years old, just getting out of prison. Uh, Anthony's parents had disappeared long ago into a, a maelstrom of, of heroin and prison time. And now Anthony, only 19 years old, is getting out of prison himself and he's going to have to fend for himself. And he's, uh, well, he's done so in the past by, by selling little vials of PCP, just enough to buy food to live on. And so here's Father Boyle. Living well, the, the up and, and, and the in reflexively goes to meet Anthony builds up this this emerging relationship with him and says, you know, one day, this is Father Father Boyle writing, one day we were leaning up against his car and a conversation was drifting toward the what do you want to do when you grow up theme. <laughs> I want to be a mechanic, he said. I don't know anything about cars, but I'd like to learn. Listen to this. As Father Boyle narrates what happens next, he says, my mechanic, Dennis, a Brooklyn Avenue native, was something of a legend here now in the barrio. Dennis could fix any car. Here he was, a tall, pole-thin Japanese-American in his near 60s. He was a chain smoker, a man of few words. Actually, he was a man of no words at all. He just smoked. (laughs) You'd bring your car in complaining of some noise going on under the hood. You'd hand your keys to Dennis, who'd just stand there with a cigarette dangling from his lips. He'd take the keys, and when you returned the next day, he'd give you your car purring away as it should. No words were exchanged the entire transaction. And so, Father Doyle says, I went to Dennis to plead my case. Look, Dennis, I say, sitting in that cramped office, smoke-filled room, hire this kid, Anthony. I mean, true, he doesn't know anything at all about cars, but he sure is eager to learn. And I believe in him. I think he could learn this stuff. Boyle says, Dennis just stares at me, long ash hovering at the end of his cigarette, (laughs) deciding whether to jump off that cliff or not. And so I redouble my efforts. I tell Dennis that this won't just be... Uh, be one job for one homie. It's gonna, it's gonna correct the, create a ripple effect in the entire neighborhood. Again, 
Long periods of silence, a drag on the cigarette, a stony stare, nothing. Dennis just fills his lungs with more smoke. Finally, he writes, I just give up and shut up. And then Dennis takes one long, last, sucking drag on his cigarette, releases it into the air, smoke wafting up in front of his face, clouding my view. Once every trace of smoke is let out, he looks at me, and this is the only thing he says that day. I will teach him everything I know. One sentence. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will teach you everything I know. What I have been given, I in turn will do my very best to give to you. Think about that 19-year-old kid who, without it, probably will get shot and with it. I mean, who knows if it will make a lifetime difference, but boy, what a chance to start again. Start again to remind ourselves that if our up and our in are really healthy and authentic, there will be this outward expression in our lives, both individually and as a church. And it really becomes almost unstoppable. People are going to bug their pastors to death because they've got another idea for how to get out there. And, and we're going to be hiding, actually, because we see you coming. But we know that, that, that you've got it going on. I would say that, that the only reason that this doesn't happen, or maybe the two biggest obstacles for that happening, are that in this area of the world... In this century of history, comfort and privilege have a way of tucking us away into cocoons. Our stepping stones of comfort, where if you're you're like me, I find the majority of my conversation revolves around where I'll eat next, what I'll eat next, what activity I'll involve myself in, where I'm going to shop, you know, where's the next vacation going to be. Going to be. There's this privilege and wealth and education that we've had access to that, that really make it hard to imagine somebody who hasn't had any of that. Steve Garber, another writer, a fabulous book called The Fabric of Faithfulness, and talks about how those of us who follow Christ need to remember that that education was never meant to be a passport to privilege, but a path to serving. See, we have an opportunity that would stagger most people in the rest of the world. There's this piece in the New York Times that put it this way, that one delusion common among successful people is that they've triumphed solely because of hard work and intelligence. And in fact... Their big break came when they were conceived in middle-class American families who loved them, who read with them, who nurtured them through little league sports and library cards and music lessons. They were pre-programmed for success by the time they were zygotes, and yet many of them are oblivious to their own advantages and to other people's disadvantages. Comfort and privilege, they shrink our worldview 
to make us want only just enough of God in our lives to pad our world a little better, but not enough to want to revolutionize it. Here's how Father Boyle put it. He said, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a covenant between equals. Compassion is always, at its most authentic, about a shift from the cramped world of self-preoccupation into an expansive place of fellowship, of real kinship, where there's this brand new palpable sense of solidarity among equals. It's a beloved community. And this is always the fruit of true compassion. End quote. Let me show you one more thing in the Gospels and and we'll wrap up for today in 20 or 30 more minutes. (laughs) Just one more thing. (laughs) Matthew chapter 10. Have a look. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. This is part of the out. Jesus is always gathering his people in, and then he sends them out. And here's his go out proclamation. Hey, it's time for you to go out. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God is near. What does that mean? Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Oh, just that, Lord? Okay. (laughs) Freely you have received, freely give. Again, as as it's been put in a paraphrase, and realize a paraphrase is not a substitute for a good translation of the Bible, but it's like a mini-sermon on it. So here's a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. It says, Now go to the lost, confused people who are right here in the neighborhood, Tell them the kingdom of God is here. Bring health to the sick. Raise the dead. Touch the untouchables. Kick out evil. You've been treated generously, so live generously. In other words, make a difference. I mean, strive to make a difference in people's lives by addressing real human needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. Make the kingdom of God tangible. Make it something that people can understand. It's physical and real that they can relate to. Make the gospel good news. Let me ask you a question. We've asked it here before, but boy, you never stop asking this one. What is the good news? How is the good news good for you? Gospel, by the way, just means good news. So what is the gospel? What makes the gospel good news for you? What is it that would make it good news for the people that you live with, work with, study with? What is it that's so good about the gospel that will make the things that are already good in their life pale in comparison? And the things that are just a mess in their lives, manageable. We know what the bad news is, and, and often we lead with the bad news. Bad news, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. We see the effects of it all around us. What's the good news? What's the good news for the restaurant owner who has to post a store closed sign again on the entrance to their restaurant? What's the good news to the teenager who's walking anxiously into school for the first time in months to be there in person? 
What's the good news who live for those people who live in million-dollar mansions in Lauren Park or for those who live in a shelter right down the road on Cawthra here? And maybe we know the theological answer. And the good news is that Jesus came to earth to show us what God is like, to preach the kingdom of God, to instill those values, kingdom values, in the lives of his followers, to offer up his own life as forgiveness for sin, to conquer death, to restore our relationship with God. It's a great answer, theological answer. Why is that good news for somebody out there? What's the good news for your neighbors? It seems to me that this is where the church begins to really shape its understanding of who it is and why it exists and where it exists and how it exists. It's why it's so important to always keep drawing ourselves back to the person of Jesus and look at the way that he modeled this. Make it about a relationship, not about religion. Make it about his up and in and out life. Make it about the promise of the kingdom because the kingdom of God will always be good news to a weary world. The divine coming into our lives. God with skin on and skin in the game. Jesus loved calling it the kingdom of God. God living with and among his people and asking them, inviting them, pleading with them, offering tantalizing examples of what it looks to live the with God life. And to a world that is worn out and splintered by division and self-centeredness and frustrated with a pandemic that's gone on too long, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened I will give you rest. And I guarantee you that is good news for those who are exhausted. The message of the kingdom will always be good news to people out there. But remember what Jesus says next. Right after those words, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, comes verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me. Not... Take my pillow underneath you. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is an instrument of work, of good work, of purposeful, cooperative work, of two people working side by side in rhythmic effort. Maybe Jesus wants us to picture us working side by side with him or maybe suggesting that we move forward into the world side by side with our brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, in the church, but always in purposeful work, moving out. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, John twenty twenty one. This is the verse that gets people's heart racing when they are out people. They're not just in and up people. They out people. They love this verse. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Because they recognize that the church exists, has always existed in the rhythms of gathering and scattering. It's like breathing. We inhale the people of God into the presence of God for worship, to build that up relationship, to enjoy the in relationship. But then we exhale them out into the world. To be the church on mission. The church on mission will always be the fullest expression of God's own heart. Why? Because God is on mission. 
God has always been on mission from the very beginning. And if God is on mission, the people of God are on mission. God is ascending God. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And so those missional followers of Jesus, those out-oriented people, they know that they don't belong to a church, rather that they are the church, and wherever they are, somehow the church is present because it's not something outside of them that they go to or support. It's something inside of them that they are. And where they are, Christ is there. The church is present. And it's exactly our out thereness, if you'd like, our out thereness that the world needs. It needs the church out there. Addressing brokenness caused by sin and reflecting the heart of God to the world. For God so loved the world, you know the verse, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those those words shocked Nicodemus. I guarantee it. Those words should shock us. Because centuries of religious conditioning have led us to expect and often live with a different version of the verse. We think it ought to read, for God so loved the church. God so loved the saved, the in. But it's not that. Imagine how jarring that must have been for Nicodemus to hear. Imagine how motivational that is for a church that's clamoring to get outside of its doors. Jesus declares that the redemptive mission of God has the world squarely in its crosshairs. God loves the world. I hope that God's people, the church, love the world as much as God does. Keep our vision focused on Christ, up and in, and on knowing him. And you'll never be able to avoid the fact that Jesus himself was focused compassionately and sacrificially on the world. It allows you to see what's going on out there with eyes not clouded by judgment, but filled with compassion, with Christ-anointed eyes. And it's then that the river begins to flow. And we see ourselves not simply as people called together, but as people called out and walking in lockstep with our missionary God. It's then that the church really becomes the body and the bride of Christ. God's up and in and out people. It was kind of a long message today, wasn't it? It's okay. We've got a long week ahead to practice it together. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father, you've given us our bodies, these these small little containers into which you pour some pretty incredible things. Gifts and abilities, the ability to, to move and interact with creation and with other people. There's not enough room for us to hold all that you would put into us. We, we want to let it spill over. I pray that you would help us now, Lord, all those places where there might be be log jams, things that are 
are damming up the, the flow of God in our lives. And pray that our up and our out would be so authentic that it makes our out unstoppable. And pray that the poor and the homeless, the uneducated, that that they would be none of those things as we think about them. That instead we would see them as a beautiful co-creation of God in the world. The Christ followers here in this place would be so committed to the way that they live and speak and incarnate who Jesus is, that we could see only opportunity in the needs of the world. For we are and we always will be most decidedly grateful for who you are. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.